0: Welcome to season five of the life giver podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life back into your military or first responder marriage. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician and advocate, and I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast where we can face the challenges of this lifestyle together. Welcome to the LifeGiver podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. And I have a friend, I'm going to call you now a friend, Derek, back on the LifeGiver podcast with me. Derek Abbey joined us when we talked about his work with Project Recover, a fascinating organization that is searching for the remains of those who've been lost in action back, not you know, just even back to wars like Vietnam and, and really healing families and bringing them um, back to the truth of what happened to their loved ones. Um, His work on the side, even uh, before he was a part of Project Recover, just his passion to help veterans transition, um, help everybody just live a more enriched life. And so I just knew it'd be just great to have Derek, you back on the podcast and talk a little bit more about your work that you're passionate about. So welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Corey. It's a joy to be back. I'm excited for our discussion.
0: And so why don't we just kind of do a recap and you just share with everybody a little bit of your story, a little bit of your journey, um, especially as it relates to the topic that you're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah. So um, I grew up in the Northwest, grew up in Seattle, was raised by a single mom that didn't graduate high school. And you know she did everything that she could possibly do to raise a rambunctious little boy and definitely struggled in the process. And... When I was 13, she um, unexpectedly passed away from a brain aneurysm. So she was there one day and gone the next. And um, I was left without a rudder and a sail. And I spent some time with my aunt and uncle. And um, by the time I was approaching my 18th birthday, you know, just trying to figure out what I was going to do. And ultimately, I was looking for an escape. And I found that in the Marine Corps. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps, uh, started off on the enlisted side, uh, but it was exactly what I needed. I needed a system of structure and that i could succeed in and obviously the marine corps provided that thoroughly for me and um but it was exactly what i needed some some boundaries some structure and tell me what to do and i can do it and i succeeded as a young marine and i invested my life into the marine corps and the marine corps in turn invested in me sent me to college ended up getting a commission doing an entire career in the marine corps that was very much like a fairy tale um 23 years and when i was Looking at what I was going to do into the next phase, I was really passionate about giving back to this community that I feel provided so much for me. I truly believe that the military saved my life. I have no idea where I would have been with, without it. Um, you know, I found that structure and that rudder and sail that I needed. Um, I got my education while I was in the military. And so when I looked at what I was going to do and where my voice had weight post service, it was with the military population. And it just so happened that. The second time the Marine Corps sent me to school was for a master's degree and I studied I started studying what institutions of higher education were doing for the military. And I created a voice in that in that space. And so right after I retired, I started working at San Diego State University and then bounced around between different universities, the University of San Diego, running their military and veterans program, building that up and then going back to San Diego State to to build that program working in the nonprofit sector to have a positive impact on the the military population with the Travis Mannion Foundation and of course with my own nonprofit Project Cover, and so um, that's that's kind of the the uh, quick version of my story and kind of how I got to where I'm at today. And I, I really learned a lot in the process, and um, I spent a lot of time kind of self reflecting through some you know anecdotal experience on my own experience within the military and leaving the military, but also spent a lot of time researching um, that experience and trying to apply it as a practitioner in those military programs at the universities and, and having a pretty positive impact, I think
0: so what was it that you were noticing because it sounds like you were really looking at not only what you were going through through your own transition and what you needed to transition out but also what was needed for other people to transition because if I correct me if I'm wrong but really what it sounds like you were helping with these academic institutions on not only how to attract you know uh, our military and veterans to come back to school but also what are we actually providing for them and is that useful and is it a place that they want to be it's not just about about getting money and getting that gi bill it's really about can you help somebody in that second portion of their career and i mean i know we could also get into all the thoughts and feelings that go through our veterans and their families in that in the transition alone i mean even we've only been in uh, 12, 13 years, maybe more now. But I mean, when you get to that last like five to 10 years, you start thinking about it and you're like, what are we going to do? And I can't imagine doing anything outside of that. And even me personally, as a spouse, like my whole world is wrapped around this community. My career is wrapped in, into this community. And so it can be daunting and scary to go, where do I go from here?
1: Yeah. And sometimes I think, um, our military members and their families just kind of think, well, I'll deal with it when it comes you know, I have to do the mission at hand right now. And you're very much right. It's not just the individual, it's spouses that are directly connected to to that person and their their career in the military. Sometimes they're both in the military. And of course, children, um, they, they have a unique experience as military children. And so... It was really cool working in, in the university because um, both institutions that I worked at allowed me to provide a program that was very student-focused. And I think a lot of universities say that, but too often they become institutional-focused. Like, well, what's best for the institution? You kind of mentioned money and things like that. and But um, what we discovered and and... Uh, I think worked very well was you know a values-based program that serves those, those students or that population constituents that we cared about in my situation, the military members, their family members. Um, and then everything good comes with that. So more students are attracted to the institution because of those relationships. And of course, that, that they're performing better. So everything that an institution is striving for in higher education, they attain through that service. And it was also really neat because not only could I serve the students that were at our institution, I had the uh, privilege of serving students really across the nation and how helping other institutions do the same thing. And well, it was, it was kind of neat because I'd get inst- these prospective students that would come in and you know they're in transition or they had transition and they're looking at higher education and we'd have some very focused discussions about what they were trying to do or what they wanted to do. And sometimes they didn't know. So we had to have a longer discussion about what that was and if our institution wasn't the best for them, i'd send them to what i thought was the best possible option for them and sometimes they look at me kind of half cocked like you're going to send me to another university and it's yeah based on what you tell me this is not the best place for you you can get a better education well maybe not better education The work a pretty good school actually i mean you can get an elite level education with you know the the credential that comes with those institutions that are going to translate into what your goals are in your in the next phase and they might not have gone to the the school i was going to but they definitely told their five or ten friends that hey if you go over here you're going to get a quality um as far as quality conversation a quality product really in an
0: assessment
1: yeah and and Mm -hmm. so our numbers grew incredibly at both institutions while I was there, just for providing that, um, that student-focused approach based on what their desires were and what they were looking for and getting them into the right places. And sometimes that was the schools that I was at and sometimes it was other institutions. And yeah, and I learned a lot in the process um, about this population and I, I spent a lot of time researching it and tried to improve on that process and built a great team To to serve the population, and I really enjoy. I enjoyed my time in higher education, and the cool thing is, is I still get to uh, work in that space from time to time. I get invited to speak at um, institutions or work with institutions on different programs like this, and I still do some academic work in the space.
0: Now, had you gotten your doctorate by this point?
1: Actually, I was in the process of working on it. So, uh,
0: and so was that fueling a lot of what you were wanting to invest into your doctorate? Was what you were seeing.
1: Yeah. um, Well, I was interested in the... I guess I got to rewind because I did my master's and I did my doctorate at the same institution, University of San Diego, both leadership programs. One was a higher education leadership program, and then my doctorate was leadership studies. And initially, I wasn't planning on focusing my research in the higher education space again. I was looking at other things outside of higher education. And... um, and then just for my own sanity i had to align them because i was working full time and working on a doctorate full time so just you know keeping myself sane was important so the foundation of that work happened when i was doing my masters and i used that to kind of set the, the foundation or the base for these programs that i was building on the institutions and then i continued that research related to those topics Um, while I was running the organizations and working on the doctorate. Specifically, I really started to examine adult development and some of the unique experiences of the military population. And the more and more I delved into that, I learned more and I could see the experiences over and over again, some common trends that were happening with the students that I was dealing with. And I could also reflect on my own experiences and some of the friction points that I faced in transition and and to be completely honest you know when i was newly out of the marine corps you know i was hearing the transition word the transition word, the transition word and i was kind of confused as to why our military members were having such a tough time transitioning so when i took a step back i looked at your life in the military constant transition mm-hmm. right so you got orders you're checking into a new unit you're preparing for deployment you go on deployment you come back from deployment you execute new orders Blah blah blah, blah all those different things so you're never stagnant and then we as a society are not the stagnant society that we might have been 50 years ago when you grew up in one town you worked at the local business for 50 years and retired with a watch and you're still hanging out with the people that you went to high school with and stuff like that even our regular society is far more fluid and moving around and people spend a couple years in one job and then they move on to another job and things like that. They're moving locations. So we're not a stagnant society. And so I was really curious, why was this one transition, specifically leaving the military service, having such a significant impact? Or why was it a friction point for military members, their families, and their kids? and So I started delving into adult development theory specifically you know, Eric so
0: let me pause you there for a second yeah, because people yeah, are going to hear you. I mean, I could totally nerd out on adult oh. development theory. Right. But those that are listening, you know, I can hear somebody going, you mean we're still developing when we're adults? Oh, Like yeah. what, what is going on with that? Or, mm-hmm. or they just tuned out when they heard that because they're going to, yeah. they they think that they're not going to understand it. So let's, let's pause just for a second and explain to everybody what is adult development theory?
1: What do you oh mean by goodness. that? Yeah. Well,
0: Really, I mean, I know you could go down a rabbit hole, yeah.
1: but and there's so many different lines of development that that we follow, not not only as adults but just through our entire life. Through through as a child, you know, we we learn that you know we're not the only thing in existence in the world. I mean, it's very very simple things. Where you know, if you put a if you're standing in front of your baby and you put. A book between your baby's face and your face, while well, the baby doesn't realize that you still exist and you're just on the other side of the book. And then we learn th- beyond that that, oh, oh, there's other things beyond what I can just see. So that's a very, very basic, right? So you start there. And then as you grow older, you know, then you start developing mature relationships and things like that. You start realizing your identities and who you are. The multiple intersecting identities that we maintain, you know, just how we interact with groups, all sorts of different things like that. And I really started focusing on identity, um, relationships, or intimacy, and then our generativity or what we think our impact is on the world. And everybody in the world develops at their own pace. I mean, there is there are some predictable development. Um, patterns and timelines and things like that. But for the most part, people really develop at their own pace. um, And some people max out (laughs) at at a pretty low level. And some people keep on developing through their entire lives. And it's not something that you can teach, really. It really comes down to experience. and, And you can teach people about adult development, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to develop further. I mean, so metacognition is one of those things where, you know, how you think about your own experiences and things like that. Like, why am I doing things that I'm doing?
0: So are you basically saying that it is within each person's control on whether or not they choose to continue to develop. And it's not necessarily something that you can teach or motivate because I'm I'm thinking of couples here, right? Often in marriage, we're like wanting our spouse to change, wanting our spouse to develop, wanting our spouse to mature. You know, we think it's, it's them that needs to do that maturing, not us first. right? Right. And so that's one aspect of what I hear you saying is that you, you can teach somebody about it, but it's really somebody's choice on whether or not they go to that next level of maturity.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of self-efficacy in the process. So when people ask me, well, how do I apply some of these things? And for the most part, it's awareness. It's mm-hmm. like, if you're aware of it, you can be mindful of things that are happening around you to include how you are processing or interacting in a certain moment and what it is about that moment that's having an impact on you and why it's having that impact and so, and in working with the students and stuff, all I would do with these things would be to bring awareness of them to them. Just put it in front of them, so that then they could take a step back, kind of the subject-object piece, and say, "Oh, oh, that might be why I'm doing this, or or I have control over this situation, or I never thought about it that way, instead of just kind of this." rabbit cage that we got going on in our head that kind of just continuously tells ourselves the same story over and over and over and over again. And ultimately what, what I noticed on the adult development piece with our military members was how fully the military provides in certain areas, even Mm -hmm. though we might not be aware of it as we're going through it. Um, So the ecological piece of it, like the context that you're finding yourself in within the military and everything that it provides. And then when you separate, you're not because you weren't completely aware of it in the moment, now you're not completely aware of it. Now that you've transitioned out, all you realize is I have all this stress and friction from what's going on in my life. So when I would sit down with students and, and explore this, I would say, well, you know, identity is a big piece. Like, oh, well, who are you besides in my case, who are you besides Derek the Marine? And Realize that you have all this newfound self-efficacy to explore the things that you might care about and put more energy into the other identities that you might not have had time or ability to previously. And that could be your family, if you have a family your spouse, if you have a spouse, but it can also be, you know, whatever it is about your life that you care about certain cultural characteristics that you're a part of, or just, you know, being in the community and being a part of your community and things like that. And so you kind of put those out in front of students and many, many, many times there's this aha moment of like, you know, I just wasn't even thinking about that. I wasn't even aware of that. And almost from the point of awareness, they have this newfound control of their life, which just makes, now you feel like you're in control. I have, you know, and that that feeling of control can make us feel just better in the moment. You know, like right now, think about, pandemics that have been happening and people feel like they don't have control and the truth is is they don't have have control over that but that just adds to this whole other level of stress and then you see them kind of um, acting out in areas to try and harness and take control of certain things the people that might struggle with these these pieces but yeah i and i'm happy to kind of delve into that as far as you want and the things that i noticed and
0: yeah, I mean, there's like three different things that came to yeah. my mind that I was <laughs> wanting to you know,
1: took a lot on. of information out. No, there. but
0: I love it though because what I think I'm I'm hearing you say, which I think could, if I'm hearing you right could be really revolutionary. And and that uh aha moment you're talking about for a lot of people listening is we tend to think that we have like this identity that we're looking for. I hear from spouses all the time, supporting spouses of like, what's my identity? What's my purpose, right? What's my identity? What's my purpose? Who am I outside of, you know, I love being a mom. I love being a stay at home mom. I love being a military spouse or whatever, but what's my identity outside of this? What impact do I have in the world? Like you mentioned, and I feel like sometimes people are looking for like the one thing, like the one identity, right? And when you say that we are, we don't even realize that we have this awareness of, I am Derek, the Marine, right? Or I'm Corey, the military spouse, or I'm Corey, the wife. And I think that people are looking for this one thing. And I, I, I believe I'm hearing you say that there comes this moment when you realize that it it's not about just the one thing, that you were that one thing among many other things that you just maybe weren't paying attention to. But when your mind opens up to your identity, can follow all these different tracks, not just one, that it opens up the ability to then control what you then do with yourself and with your identity. Is that's a crude way yeah. of saying it, but is that what you're saying?
1: Much of it, yes. Yes. And I think what a, the better way to even look at it, you're you're one hundred percent true. And so what I would like to do is just rewind it a little bit and think about when a new military member joins the military and that comes with their entire family unit. Um, doesn't matter what route you go to. You typically join between eighteen and twenty-two. Most people do four years and then they go on the rest of their life, but it doesn't matter. You can be somewhere between eighteen and twenty-two, join, do four, ten. 20, 30 years, it all ends up being the same because that that young adult is really starting to grow in those areas. And so Eric Erickson is a psychologist that that you know he, if you've taken a psychology course, you probably read about him, and he has eight different stages of development. And I look at the middle of them. And he tends to say that you would you'll develop them in stages. And the three pieces that I look at in the middle are identity, intimacy, and not necessarily romantic intimacy, but healthy relationships, strong relationships and bonds with others, and generativity or legacy purpose are other words for that. So he says you'll do one of those at a time. And I look at how the military provides for those. And I think the second you join the military, the military Mm -hmm. provides fully for all three of those. So if you think about it, I like to use myself as an example, Derek the Marine. I joined the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps really encouraged me to develop my identity as a Marine. Um, If I wanted to go explore whoever else I was besides Derek the Marine, the system really pushed back on it and said, go ahead and focus on being Derek the Marine. (laughs) And the more I bought into that, the more I did that, the more the system rewarded me. Not only did I know it, but everybody around me knew that. And that continued throughout my entire career. And then if you look at Relationships again from the very first day boot camp OCS whatever route you're going through you get rid of the I you become the team um, it's we and you depend on others you have a shared mission that's almost tangible. you can almost taste it you depend on them to accomplish whatever that mission is and it starts with you know your rack mate in boot camp and then it grows to you know a platoon a battalion a squadron a ship whatever it happens to be those bonds are just strong. Very very strong, and if you deploy to the combat, they're even further enhanced. Where I'm, my life is dependent on the person next to me, and their life is dependent on me. We have these strong bonds. We know what we're doing. We've had shared hardship and shared experiences to get here. Those are very very strong relationships. And then the last one, your purpose or impact on the world is provided for you, um, and it grows very very quickly. You become responsible for you know. Dozens, potentially hundreds, thousands of men and women, um, millions and millions of dollars of equipment, and that's again from the very first day. Rackmate, fire team, squad, platoon, ship, squadron—all these different things—and that grows really quick. Enormous responsibility at a very, very young age, potentially. And now, if you go to combat, you're responsible for the men and women that you serve with. They're responsible for you. Um, You're responsible for the mission and potentially you're responsible for the lives of an enemy, which is significant. So those are three things that all happen from the very, very first day and continue to be enhanced and grown as you spend your time in the military. And then the day you step out of it, and they're starting to implement this now, nobody says a word about that. And, And now you have to figure out, Who am I besides Derek, the Marine? And um, how do I have healthy relationships with other people that don't have similar experiences that I have? Um, What are healthy expectations to put on them? What are uh, healthy expectations for them to put on me? And what is my newfound purpose? How am I going to have an impact on the world? And the last piece of that, actually all of those, is you have this newfound self-efficacy that you can explore who you are, expand who you are in your identities. You get to have relationships with the people that you want to. And your purpose and direction legacy after this moment is completely up to you. And you may fail and failure wasn't an option in the military. But now that's how you learn. And for some people, that that paralyzes them.
0: Yeah. And, oh, I can totally see that. Yeah. I have a question before... My question about that. (laughs) My question is, um, because I know you've also been through um, some deep loss and some trauma in your military career. How would you say that those kinds of trauma impact those three um, stages of Erickson's stages, right? Because I could look back to the trauma that we have been exposed to, my husband's been exposed to, and it seems to like even more so solidify that community, that legacy to the point that I feel like there's a lot of people struggling to move past that trauma because they then identify with that is my legacy is that story or that moment in, and finding an additional identity other than the trauma that they went through.
1: Yeah. Um, so no matter what, if you experience some sort of trauma, any type of trauma in the process, that just exacerbates the impact of um, your struggle with those, those pieces. And I've seen people struggle no matter what, whether they had an obvious trauma or not. I've seen people that you kind of look at and you're like, why is this so difficult for you? And it's because you lost all of those things. Now add in something that you might be struggling with beyond that. And it, yeah, it just exacerbates it even more. Um, one of the issues that I, I have seen and with people, and it's something that we do as a society, we focus so much on, um, people that have been harmed or have experienced trauma and we push that identity on them right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Okay. You were a victim in that moment. Now you're no longer that victim. Now we need to move, but groups and people push you and keep you there. And then we as individuals will, you know, we're, we're impacted by the groups around us. And they force identities on us. They force roles on us. And sometimes we take those on because it's easy. It's easy to take those on and stay in the sand. No, that was me then. And that's no matter what, that will forever be part of my experience. Um, but now how do I move on and explore these other things? So, you know, what is my... Y- you can be an advocate and that that's... Great. But then that moves you out of that, out of that role and you can have an impact in that area. But you get to pick that, that new direction you're going to.
0: I almost picture our life like a book, you know, where you have these different chapters and there are things that we're going to experience in a a beginning chapter, even a middle chapter that's supposed to lead to who you're going to be by the end of the book, right? And if we're never quite evolving past that chapter, then we're missing out on the rest of the story, you know? And so I see it again and again, people um, maybe want to move past that trauma. But like you said, sometimes people want you to be stuck in that too, because they don't know... They don't live in your skin and in your mind, and they don't understand how you could even move past that, much less experience something that they can't imagine experiencing. And so then they kind of put that identity on you as you are that guy, you Mm -hmm. are that person, or you are that person that, you know, was awarded that medal even, right? And so we don't want to see you as something other than that. Whereas the real challenge, like I, I guess I'm hearing you say is that is part of your story. It's part of your chapter, but it also can be a part of you kind of turning the page and leading you to that place of advocacy or leading you out of that victim place into now what?
1: Right. Yeah. And goods and others, you know, the complexity is, is we're human. So we're this entire spectrum of experiences and capabilities and stuff, not just one piece of it. You know, it's like we, we, Sometimes put people on pedestals, and then we find a chink of armor. This is the common one today, and then we tear them down because of that. And the truth is, is well, this person has an entire lifetime of experiences and everything, and also they may have changed and all these different things, and not justifying any bad behavior or anything like that. But the truth is, is people change and they shift, and they're they're a part of all these different experiences that occurred to them over over their entire lifetime, and had the potential to go on and do certain things but we like to pigeonhole you know like mm-hmm. okay just because it's easier for us You're X. am mm-hmm. gonna put that label on you and try and keep you in that box and so you know the friends that try and help that person that might move on from that moment they're just kind of like i don't know what to do i'm not a professional mm-hmm. in this area so i just want to comfort you and and maybe that's having a positive impact depending on the moment or maybe it's keeping that person in that space that they're in and you know, the one example that I uh, I like to point out when I'm working with people is the thank you for your service piece, because so, there's so many military members that get so wrapped up around that. Like, oh, mm-hmm. because it, it comes off as this throwaway piece. And so there's multiple times where I can think about and using my own experience and not just thank you for your service, but other things where where I had interactions with people that had no clue what the military was like. But they they knew me and they cared about me and they wanted to engage with me in some capacity. When on my very first combat deployment, I remember the most, most difficult part of every deployment is coming home and interacting with people at home that haven't been experiencing the things that I was experiencing. And I remember after that first deployment, people asking, well, what was it like? And you are kind of like, I don't know how to answer that question. You know, do I give you a completely uh, honest answer? And then you kind of look at me like I'm a monster or something like that? Or do I just lie and now I feel bad about that? Or what do I say? And then um, what I realized after multiple deployments, and it got easier, what I realized was I had come home from this deployment. The people around me that cared about me wanted to engage with me, but they didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And so... That was the question that came to their mind. How was it? innocent question like that. And I realized, you know, as I move forward, they care about me. They're not trying to hurt my feelings. They don't really want the gory details. They just want to connect with me. That's all they're trying to do. So I could hold that against them when this person is really just trying to cross a boundary. Or I can connect with them where they're ready to be connected with. And I find similarity in that in people's thank you for your service. Yeah, it, it has come off as this social requirement in many ways for people like, oh, you were in the military, thank you for service. But at the same time, some people are very, very genuine about it. And that seems like the right thing to say. And other people just feel like the social pressures to, to say it, but I'm not going to hold it against them. Um, for I'm,
0: trying to connect.
1: For trying to connect. Yeah, it's really about meeting them where they're at. And, you know... I, one thing i call leadership fatigue if you find yourself working in a space for a long time and you're having you're trying to have some social change around you and i've done it with the military community well i would get phone calls and people that would come into my office and i could predict the conversation because i know what they're going to ask and all this things because most of the time they're just unsure and this, the same question comes up over and over and over again well a lot of people that just infuriates them and it does become fatiguing and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to have this conversation again. Well, the truth is, if you want to make a change in a social or cultural environment, you have to meet people where they're at. If I hold it against them that they don't know, and I condemn them for that, or I lash out at them or something like that, well, my ability to have an impact with that person was missed. Now I've lost that moment.
0: I want, I want everybody listening to pause here. And I want you to rewind with your 30 second arrow. <laughs> I want you to rewind the last minute and a half or so and listen to what Derek just said, but I want you to listen to it thinking about your marriage. Mm -hmm. because there's um, so many times that we um, go into our relationship and we just assume that our spouse is going to act the way that we want them to act or they should just get it or they should just fill in the blank, whatever. And it's about approaching relationships around you with curiosity. It's about approaching your relationship with this kind of perspective, this kind of you walk into even a conversation or conflict with your spouse and go... Regardless of how my spouse is trying to come across right now, everybody wants to connect. Everybody's trying to connect. It's that intimacy that you talked about, Derek, in the beginning with Eric Stages. And if you could see people, including your spouse, with that lens, that somebody's trying to connect, we would have so much less judgment, I think, towards our spouse, towards civilians, um, like you're saying. Um, I know
1: it would be so much healthier.
0: Yeah. And, you know, my husband, um, he actually picked it up from another service member friend of his, but he started when people would say, thank you for your service. He has started answering people with you're worth it, uh, um, which has it's been very... Response. It's a very interesting experiment. It's from an experiment from my perspective. Yeah. With, for him, it kind of closes that gap of just recognizing, okay, first of all, somebody is trying to be nice and they're trying to recognize that you have sacrificed something even if they don't understand it. But for him, it closes that gap of connection to go, we are so much more connected than you realize. It's not just, it's okay that you don't understand, but what he wants you to understand in the moment is that you are part of that. And, and I did this on your behalf or, or whatever. And it closes that gap of, of affection. And so it's been interesting to watch people's responses as they kind of like shake awake almost (laughs) in that, in reaction of going, oh yeah, wow. Oh, thank you. You know, of realizing that. That is what you did, you know, and there's never been a negative reaction to that. Because like you said, people just want to connect and they want to feel part of and they don't understand, but they want to or they wouldn't say something.
1: There's a um, in working with a lot of people that don't have military experience um, that, that they've asked, well, what's the right thing to say? And how do I have conversations? I'm afraid to ask questions and things like that. So I stole one of them I stole from Carl Marlantis because I had an opportunity to work with him a, a couple of times. And um, so he came up with a simple question of, ask somebody what they ate when they were deployed or what do you eat when mm-hmm. you're in Afghanistan? What, what would you eat when you're on the ship or whatever? Because one, why would you know that? And you wouldn't mm-hmm. know that. And it's not, a, it's not an imposing question or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you, you wouldn't know. And and I've used that myself with older veterans when I worked with World War II era folks or Korean era folks. And I, I'm happy to share a story that I, that I love related to that. Um, and another question is, what's the most unusual place that you've slept? And mm, people... Great you stories. Know, if you, yeah. If you, if you, <laughs> and if you want to have an open conversation, you can start with those simple questions. And one, most... Anybody, almost anybody is going to be willing to um, share. And then it can go in a direction that you could, couldn't possibly... It's a very rich conversation. And I've, Yeah. I've had uh, folks that I've talked to and given that and they come back and they said, I was on a plane and this person next to me was in the military and I asked them about the food question. And we talked for 4 hours about... Yeah. All sorts of different things related to the military, and it led to all these different stories and things like that. And because so, and people I'll,
0: want to share their stories, don't you think? Like they really I'll do.
1: Connect. The truth is, is so, and I call it the military non military boundary because I'm a proud civilian, so <laughs> I own that <laughs> identity now. I'm a veteran, and, I love that. and uh, so I call it this military non military connection, and, and because it also includes. Spouses and children that have unique experiences, and then people that just don't have connection to the military. We have a smaller military today. We have conflicts overseas that have barely any impact on us at home. And Mm -hmm. so there's this growing, growing gap, and people don't know how to have those conversations. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 incredible the the impact that that you can have. And I, uh, I one time I was in line, oddly enough, at a buffet. And I was given a presentation and the gentleman in line next to me happened to be a Korean war era veteran, Marine. And so he tells me he was in the Chosen Reservoir. So Marine legendary battle and sub-zero temperatures, all these Marines were surrounded by a um, division of enemy and they were able to fight their way out with all of their men and equipment. But legendary battle in the Marine Corps. And so I'm standing next to this gentleman. And so his name was Dave. And I said, Dave, so what'd you eat when you were in The Chosen? And I thought his answer was going to be, you're crazy. We didn't have any food or something along those lines. And he Mm. said, you know, it's funny you ask. He said, we didn't have any food, but we used code words for resupply of ammunition. And one of the code words was Tootsie Roll. And so whenever they ran out of ammunition, they'd call in on the radio, and they'd ask for however many thousands of Tootsie Rolls. And um, they drop ammunition. And he says, I don't know what happened one time, but they dropped actual Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> and so, so then he goes into this whole story about him shoving frozen what? Tootsie Rolls in their pockets and eating these Tootsie Rolls. And this fuel tank or something like that on this vehicle was shot w- with, a, with a weapon that had a hole in it. And he took a Tootsie Roll and he shoved it in the hole. It froze over and they were able to take the vehicle out of there. What? But yeah, so this whole conversation started from just asking what he ate. And then the funny thing is, is apparently, this is a legendary story that I knew nothing about the Tootsie Roll story. With it is. And I actually found an exhibit related to it and some stuff online related to the. And he lived it. But I got to hear it literally from firsthand experience. But all that was just... I don't know what to ask Dave, but I'm just going to ask him this mm. simple question. Even as a fellow Marine, knowing what the Chosen Reservoir was, how do I start this in a direction that he doesn't get offended or shut down or anything like that.
0: That is incredible. Now I'm going to have to go look that up. I love history and I love that era. Um, It's just what people had to do. And and even the way that our country came together is just so different than it is today. And I love how you also switched up that military-civilian divide kind of phrase that we normally use. I took you somewhat off topic, maybe way off topic, but there was another question that I wanted to ask you going back to veteran family transitions. Um, You brought up how, you know, this military lifestyle and thankfully so, because like you said, just completely changed your life for the better, right? And gave you these things that you really needed. So we're not even complaining about any of this. It's almost a gift that you are given um, so much of this opportunity to develop as an adult and mature. Through this structure and system that is our military, it reminded me. And so, this is my question for you: Is I would love to apply that in a real world way today. And so, as we're recording this, we're still in the middle of waiting for COVID to end. And maybe when this comes out, we'll still be in definitely a, at least a post-COVID, if not still in in it somehow, or at least coming off of it. So, what? Somebody had asked me, um, or at least somebody had told me, you know when we look at everything that's happened in our country and how people have had to really be on restriction and deal with quarantining and masks and just so many things that are so new, um, they said, you know, well, at least you military are used to this, you know, you should be built for this. And I did say that in the beginning, in the very beginning, I said, and it was kind of a joke that was kind of going around that like, you know, the government takes so much from you and, and puts you on restriction and tells you where you can and can't go. And in some ways, what you can and can't eat. And we kind of were joking around on social media to share, like, welcome to the club, to everybody else. And, you know, and I kind of turned that initially of like, let's lead the way on that. Like we we kind of know how to deal with that uncertainty. We kind of and know how to live within that structure that you're talking about and how the whole world came together. Like there's a fantastic um, Facebook group called, um, I think it's something like What I See Out My Window. That is fascinating. That started when COVID hit. I see you writing that down, Derek. It's fascinating (laughs) because when COVID hit, everybody was in their homes. And so people started sharing, here's what's out my window today. And you're looking out people's windows in France and Germany and Pakistan and like all these different, and you get to kind of come together. We're all going through this experience together, you know, going to your community point there. And so as things have gone on though, somebody brought that up again to me recently and they said, well, you know, you military, you should be used to this. Like you should, you know, this should be fairly comfortable for you. And I said, in some ways, yes, but I think that we've reached a point now where we're trying to approach how to deal with school. What should we do with our kids? Leaving it up to parents to decide what they do with their children, whether or not they go to school, whether or not they stay home. And suddenly you're hit with all these decisions, go, you know, to your point about transition is you're hit with these decisions of, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to be about? What do I want to do with my time? Where do I want to live? Like all these questions. And in COVID right now, is this, as we transition and come back into a post-COVID world, you're suddenly given these decisions to make of what do you believe? um, What do you want to do with yourself? How do you want to engage with the world? How do you want your children to engage with the world? um, How do you want to work? Where are you going to say no because they believe something that you don't believe or or vice versa? And suddenly, I think we're experiencing as a culture the same paralysis of I don't know how to make that decision for myself because I need something somebody else to tell me if it's safe. I need somebody else to tell me if my school is safe for my kids. And I don't know if I can carry on my shoulders the weight of that decision when everybody's also telling me it's a life or death decision. And so everybody's paralyzed. And so those of you who are not transitioning yet, I think in some ways are kind of experiencing some similar feelings of like, now you're suddenly able to make decisions for yourself. And so I want to hear what your response is, Derek. But that's what I said. My response to this person was, yeah, but I think we're kind of dealing with a level of anxiety If we've been in a structure in the military for so long where we were told what to do and where to go and for our service members, what to wear. And so when somebody actually gives you the ability to make a decision, I don't know if we're doing so well on that.
1: Yeah. Well, so kind of to relate that to the military, that's that self-efficacy piece because everything is outlined for you in your service. You you know there is a there's an order <laughs> somewhere that tells you how to do something, or somebody will tell you how to do it, when to do it, how fast to do it, in what way to do it, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then when you transition, uh, now you have to plot your own path. And you know, even in higher ed, I heard over and over and over again people that were very very impressive in the military breaking down in my office Mm -hmm. and the common phrase that I heard consistently was just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, I'm, you know, doing my own path. This is your life and it's scary and you might screw up the decision and that's okay. This is not life and death. Not getting we're not to COVID piece yet, but, um, you know, you might, you might mess it up a little bit, but it's yours. And so own it, and the people that would own that self efficacy and their their own path the the quicker they did that i I saw the more comfort that mm-hmm. and the ability to move on in really just a happier place and less stress and things like that oh, okay yeah, well, I might I might mess this up, but I'm going to keep on driving toward toward a direction, and so yeah, there is definitely some similarities with deploying in the military and then Definitely, some things that are unique to to COVID, and I joke that you know this is my extended domestic deployment. That's what COVID is. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it comes with its 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 own um, unique challenges, and they're unique to us because we, anybody that's living now, hasn't experienced a pandemic like this, you know, and so we don't know how to deal with that. And not only do we have to deal with that, we have to deal with everything that the media tells us is. Right or wrong, and depending on what channel you listen to, that might that changes. We're in the middle of an election, which influences all of those things. And now, yeah, now I don't know what the right answer is. And so, my recommendation for that is actually a recommendation I give to a lot of people that are going through these moments is that, and that's to sit down and and do a values inventory and really spend some time thinking and figuring out what you. What are the most important things in your life? And there's ways of doing that. I recommend people write down any and every value that they, that they hold dear to themselves. You know, get a list of like 40, cut it in half down to 20, cut it in half down to 10. And the hard part is getting it down to four or five because you feel like I'm getting rid of things that are really, really important to you. But that really makes you think about it and analyze what are the top four, five, six things that are the most important things in your life. And then once you have gone through the challenge of doing that, then assess where do you spend your time, your money, your energy, efforts, all these different things. And do they align with those values? And most of the time, they don't. Because we're Mm. influenced, like I said, by all those other things. And not only the media and all those things, but the groups that we hang out with that tell us certain things are important. You know, I used to be in a fighter squadron. And in the fighter squadron, it was important to have a BMW. Is that really align with my values? No, but it seemed like it was important at the time. Um, now I drive my hot rod Civic. It gets me to and from. You know, it gets great gas mileage. I can find a parking spot, and it aligns literally aligns with my values and what I think is important.
0: Are you saying that exercise helps you make um, better commitments or say better yeses and say better? Well, nos? I
1: think it it helps you. Well, once you figure out what those are, and then hopefully you can you know find harmony and. These are the top five or six things that are important to me. Um, I'm spending my time, energy, efforts, actions, all these different things, and they align with that. And it's okay to forgive yourself when you drift off every once in a while because, you know, we do need a break every once in a while. But that, I think, is what's going to help you make those decisions. So, you know, your family, the health of you, it, that's for me, that my personal health is important to me because I feel as long as I take care of myself, I am a better instrument to take care of the other things around me. And I don't think that's being selfish. I think that's being smart because I care about these other things. If I don't take care of myself, I can't do as well in these other things that I care about. That's me. You know, I I would assume others have, you know, the importance of their family is, is important to them. And those things may change as you get older, you get married, you have kids, all these different things, you know. Your kids obviously become a priority or when you don't have them, they're not a priority. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But when you kind of figure out what are those top things that are important to you, then you can use those like, hey, these are my values and these are the things that I not only espouse, but act as my values. And then hopefully that can make that decision a little bit easier. It's not going to be an easy decision because it's unprecedented. Um, Mm -hmm. And you could screw it up. And that's okay, you know, because it is unprecedented. So, you know, I don't expect uh, perfection from people while they're making these decisions. And you should give yourself a little bit of room for forgiveness. And, you know, I thought this was the best thing initially. Turns out it wasn't. So we're going to adjust. And, you know, I thought, you know, I needed to get my kids in school. Right now, I don't feel safe. So I'm going to adjust that decision related to that. So,
0: so good. I I was going to ask you, you know, I can apply what you're saying to even um, those that have transitioned that I've talked to who feel so much pressure to choose that forever home because they now have a, you know, everybody says forever home because they now have a choice You know, and then the more I talk to people, the more they learn after a while, like it doesn't have to be a forever home. Like you get the choice to move somewhere and try it out and you can move again. And in some cases, they're even still more comfortable with that than staying in one place long enough. And so that you you can like you can change your decision.
1: That's it. I mean, I can relate with that perfectly because I got out of the military, I had options in San Diego. I loved living in San Diego. I moved to San Diego and then got out. Got married. So then the decisions around that included my wife, but my wife also loves San Diego. But then when we were there, we were like, okay, we're gonna buy a house and in San Diego. And we started shopping around. And, you know, kind of going back to that values piece, it's like, well, it doesn't make sense for us to spend this much money on a home. We can't really afford that. And so then, you know, we started looking at the things that are important to us. Both of us spend our time together in the outdoors. And so we needed we wanted more access to the outdoors and uh, a place where we could afford better and so we moved up to Oregon we live in Bend and I can go 10 minutes in any direction and be in any outdoor environment that I love and I can do it with my wife and we're happy and we didn't spend even half as much as what we would spend in on a home in San Diego so we're not you know stressed on the money side you know of course we had the flexibility to do that and things like that but those are the those values are going back to those were the things that um, encouraged those decisions, and you know it started off with me and be, it being my decision, and I was married, and then it became our decision, and so where do our values overlap, and what are our values as a um, and that, what is our mission or purpose as a as a couple and things like that, and yeah, we moved here, and even though we're super super happy here, and I'd love to stay here in the, the home that we have and the community that we're in, that could potentially change down the road. But we're certainly more happy here than where we were. And I think we're more happy in the home that we got than if we spent something in San Diego and, and things like that. But. Yeah. I have
0: seen those prices for
1: sure. Yeah. You know, I,
0: I could talk with you all day, Derek. Um, I think I in the time that we <laughs> the time that we have left. I mean, we could keep talking so that you pretty much write your book mm-hmm. if you wanted to, because it's to so do fascinating. Um, but I would love, you know, is there any other tips just to kind of finish up? You know, if there's somebody that's listening who maybe is feeling or foreseeing that paralysis, you know, um, what would you say to encourage them? Based off of what you've studied, based off of the conversations that you've had over time, what would you encourage somebody who is transitioning or about to transition on um, what this new stage can actually look like for them if they want to?
1: Yeah. So the first piece that I would say would be to harness that that new self-efficacy that you have. You are the captain of your ship now. So. You know, to use a military analogy, if you will, um, but you get to choose. Now, I would caution people on things because it, you know it's what I've seen a lot of folks do is okay. Now I, I'm harnessing my my destiny, and I'm going to cure cancer, and they put a flag on top of a mountain, and that's their new purpose. It doesn't have to be a flag on top of a mountain. It could be your immediate community. It could be. You know, do that values inventory. And if your kids are your most important thing and they play kickball, be the assistant coach on the kickball team. If you're having an impact on your kids and their friends and all that stuff. Look at where your voice has impact and lean into that. And it could be 2 people, 3 people. It doesn't need to be a 1,000 people. But I truly feel that if you invest in what you care about and you look at where and analyze where your voice has impact, that sphere of influence will grow the more and more you invest into that, and that's one thing that I did when I when I separated. You know, I just really analyzed where where does my voice have an impact, and that started at San Diego State, and then it kind of grew across the nation in the higher education space, and it still includes that, but now it also includes you know the Miapow community and their families, all these gold star families, and people that I don't even have an opportunity to interact with one on one. And I never uh, expected reciprocity. I did it because it was important to me. If I live by a quote, it's one of Zig Ziglar's quote, that you can have anything in your life that you want as long as you help enough other people get what they want out of life. Mm. And I truly believe like the heart of that quote is reciprocity will come in some way. And it could be in just your own mental health. Um, It could be in having healthy, loving relationships with people that you care for and they care about you. It could come in resources and support like money and paychecks and things like that. Uh, But I found that, you know, we do need those Maslow's needs. You know, you need safety, shelter and food for you and your family. But boy, the people that I saw struggle, struggle with trying to figure out who they were, you know, how to have healthy relationships with people around them. And what their what their new destiny and legacy is going to be, and then what, I feel like once they figure that out, they they were living a much happier life.
0: I love it, Derek, so much. Um, thank you for diving in and caring about um, so many people and the natural transition that so many of them have to go through in order to have that second part of their life you know there's so much life to be lived past a job yeah. and for some people it goes on to a second job and a third job and, and whatever it's it's not something to be afraid of it's something to be um, to look at as a, a, a chapter a few chapters in your life and so I love the fact that you dug in there and really thought um, a lot about what everybody's going through and had all all these conversations and then kind of really put, put together this theory of what we need to have veterans and their families transition better. And so I've learned so much in this conversation today, just even just there's a few things that just have stood out in my own mind that um, I think are fascinating, and especially the one that I'm walking away with is just how much it is our choice to grow. It's our choice to take that step. And so when you are met with that feeling of paralysis, I hope those of you who are listening We'll see it as an opportunity, unless it's something to be afraid of and that it doesn't have to be the end of your maturity. It doesn't have to be the end of your story that you can actually just take a step and just try the next thing. Just do the next thing. And if it falls apart, then that's okay. You pick yourself up and you just do the next thing. Yeah. And so there's so many people that will come alongside you like Derek and, and your community that's gone before you and that is still surrounding you that will walk with you too. So Derek, thank you so much for your time today and for what you're doing to make an impact in your community and in the world. Um, you're a fascinating person to listen to. And so I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, Corey. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you're feeling especially grateful, head on over to patreon.com forward slash lifegiver or find the link in today's show notes where for just a couple of dollars you can help breathe life into more service families. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.